Everyone in this room is in one of two categories. And by extension, everyone on the face of the planet is in one of two categories. And those categories simply stated are saved or lost. Everyone is either saved or lost. And based upon what category someone finds themselves in when they die, they will experience eternity in two very different ways. Someone that is saved experiences eternal salvation in that wonderful place called heaven. Someone that is lost experiences God's judgment forever in that awful place called heaven hell. And we see salvation and judgment clearly pictured in our text today. So turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6 as we continue our study. This wonderful Old Testament book, Joshua chapter 6. We will begin reading in verse 21. Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you are physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, which is, I remind you, truth with no mixture of error. Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. This is after God caused the walls around Jericho to fall flat. The Bible says, Then... They devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, sheep and donkeys, oxen, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in. And brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come into your presence in Jesus' name. As we just sang, the eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see. You are a holy God. And the only way we can have a relationship with you and be in your presence and see your glory is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who washes away our impurity and brings us into relationship with you. And so we are grateful today for Jesus. We're grateful for the gospel, the good news that sinners like me can be saved and have this personal relationship with you. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd work in our midst by your Spirit As your word goes forth, would you, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see the truths of Scripture and give us the wherewithal, the inclination to respond to what you teach us. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. Would you, in these moments, help us to understand better 
those categories of salvation and judgment. And we'll thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've worked our way through the book of Joshua, we have seen how God brought his people, the Israelites, into the promised land. He parted the River Jordan brought them into that land that he promised to give them. And as they entered the land, they had to deal first with the mighty fortified city of Jericho. And last time we were together and studied Joshua 6, we saw how God gave them a wonderful victory, an unconventional victory through unconventional means. He had them march around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. At the end of the seventh time, they... Uh, Blue trumpets, they shouted, and God, by his mighty hand, caused the walls around Jericho to fall flat. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. There in verse 21, it says, Then they went in and devoted the city to destruction. So, the end of this chapter provides a striking contrast between devastating judgment and glorious salvation. Jericho experiences devastating judgment. Rahab and her household experience glorious salvation. And we see the contrast very clearly at the end of this text. And I believe this contrast is a microcosm of the only two possibilities for all people. Everyone in this room will either experience devastating judgment or... Glorious salvation. And this text helps us to think more carefully about those categories. And so I want to answer this question. What do we learn in this passage about judgment and salvation? What do we learn? Well, first of all, we learn that judgment is administered by a righteous God. Judgment is administered by a righteous God. Notice what it says there in verse 21. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now this verse uh, offends our modern day sensibilities that the army of Israel goes into Jericho and destroys everyone in that city. As a matter of fact, this passage and others like it throughout Joshua are often held up as a reason Uh, that the God of the Bible is not worthy of our worship and allegiance. Uh, A few years ago, uh, there were some men known as the New Atheists. They wrote some books, and they were on the speaking circuit, and they got a lot of notoriety. And these New Atheists would often point to passages like this, where the Israelites destroyed everyone in the city and everyone in a certain group of people and say, That God, the God of the Bible, is not worthy of allegiance. He's not worthy of words. Look at what he did in the Old Testament. How do you explain that? And they would hold up a story like this. Because of that tension that we feel in this passage, people have tried to explain away this passage in different ways. For example, some have just said, like the New Atheist, well, that shows you that the God of the Bible is not good. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Over in Psalm 119, verse 68, the Bible says that God is good and he does good. Everything God does is good. Every thought he thinks is good. Every action he carries out is good. God is a good 
God. So you can't just say, well, he's not a good God because of what happened here in Jericho. Others try to explain this passage and perhaps try to make it more palatable by saying, well, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Come in real close. Wrong answer. There is one God. And the the Bible is one story of God bringing about redemption for sinners like you and me. And we see him doing that in different stages of his unfolding revelation. So the Bible is one story of one God. And over in Malachi chapter 3, God says, verse 6, I do not change. God is an immutable God. He does not change with different ideas or different whims. He's not a capricious God. He is one God. And so we can't say, well, he was kind of this way in the Old Testament and he's different in the New Testament. No, God in the Bible is consistently bringing about redemption for you and for me. So we can't say God changed. That is wrong. So how are we to understand this passage? That everyone in Jericho got wiped out. And as Joshua unfolds, different people groups are wiped out by the Israelites. How are we to understand that? Well, before I get into that, I think it's interesting that some people stumble over this passage while putting Noah's Ark in their baby's nursery. Now think about that for a moment. We had baby uh, Noah's Ark in our first child's nursery. And I understand that there's an ark and there are rainbows and there are animals. It's real cute, right? But think about Noah's ark. Other than Noah and his family, the entire population was wiped out. And so we read a verse like this and say, what in the world's going on? But we smile at Noah's ark, right? And so how are we to think about this passage? Well, the question is, How are we to understand the conquest of the promised land which calls for total destruction of the nations living there? Now, before I get into the answer to that question, I do want to say this. Uh, I don't feel like I have to defend the Bible or defend the Lord. Uh, Charles Spurgeon famously said, Defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it and it will defend itself. So my job before you this morning is to put forth God's word and let God's word defend itself. But I do want to think through this passage in the wider context of all of Scripture. So, how are we to understand the conquest of the promised land which called for total destruction? First of all, God has a sovereign right to do whatever He wants to do. God has a sovereign right to do whatever He wants to do. Over in Psalm 115 verse 3, the Bible says, Listen, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And because God is good, whatever he wants to do is always the right thing to do. And so God is sovereign. He created it all. And because he's the creator, he has a right to exercise his authority in any way that he sees fit. So the first thing we need to understand before we get any other thoughts is that God is on his throne. He does whatever he wants. Here's the second thought to understand this conquest. God is jealous. God is jealous. Now, when I say that God is jealous, I don't mean it in the sense of our petty, sinful jealousy with one another. That's not what I mean at all. 
When I say that God is jealous, I mean that God is uppermost in his own affections because he is the one who is worthy of all worship and praise. And because he is the one worthy of all worship and praise, he wants you to worship him because he knows if you are worshiping anything or anyone else, you are worshiping something that will lead you to destruction. So God wants your ultimate good, and your ultimate good is in worshiping that which is most glorious. God is most glorious. So God is jealous for your worship. When you worship something else or someone else, you, you, are, you are headed toward destruction. And God wants you to find the fulfillment and the joy and the awe that comes from worshiping Him who is the only one worthy of worship and praise. And because God is jealous, He commands the, the total destruction of the peoples living in the land. Listen to what it says over in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Moses speaking says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You should not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Verse 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God is saying here, the reason I want you to destroy the peoples living in the land is because I am putting you in that land to thrive for my purpose is one day to send a Messiah through you. And I know that if you don't drive out all the people, they will lure you to worship their idols and their false gods. And I'm jealous for your worship. That's why God wanted them to destroy the peoples living in that land. Which, by the way, God's concern in Deuteronomy 7 is exactly what happened. We're going to study Joshua in the, the coming weeks and see that they did not fully drive out the people in that land. And some people remained, and sure enough, Judges tells us those other nations lured Israel away from worship of the one true God to worship false gods. So the reason God commands utter destruction of Jericho is because he's a jealous God. He wants them to worship him, the only one who is worthy of worship. And so... How do you explain this conquest? God's sovereign, does what he wants. God is jealous and wants him to worship him alone. But here's a third thing we need to think about. God had been patient. God had been patient. Way back in Genesis 15, the Lord is speaking to Abraham. He's reminding Abraham of his promise. I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you descendants, and one day... Your descendants will come back to this land you're living in now, which is the promised land, the land of Canaan. And listen to what he says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 16. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, watch this, for the iniquity of the Amorites or the Canaanites is not yet complete. 
In other words, I'm being patient with the people living in that land. This verse indicates that even though God was patient with the people, the the Canaanites, the Amorites, when he had had enough, he would use Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, under Joshua's leadership as an instrument of judgment on those people. But Genesis 15, 16 reminds us, hey, God was being patient with the people living in the land. Now, why would God be patient with idol-worshiping pagan people? Or let me make it more personal. Why would God be patient with you? And why would God be patient with a sinner like me? I mean, the first time we sin against a holy God, we, we could be judged, right? Fall under his wrath. Why is God patient? Second Peter 3, 9 tells us. God is patient toward us. Listen, not, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient. He gives us sinners time so that we will come to the conclusion that we need him and we turn from our sin and place our faith in the Lord. God was patient with the people living in that land, which leads to the last conclusion here about this passage. Repentance was an option. Repentance was an option. Look in Joshua 6 verse 17. Joshua's giving the army instructions. He says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live. Now, why did Rahab and her household live while everyone else died? Why were they saved when everyone else was, was destroyed? Simply because Rahab repented. Over in Joshua 2, we see Rahab heard about the one true God. She believed that these spies in Jericho were representatives of the one true God. And she hid them and helped them, signifying that she believed in the one true God. And because of that, she was saved from the destruction of Jericho. She turned from her idol worship. She turned from her pagan ways and turned to the one true God and was saved. So Rahab demonstrates repentance was an option for the people living in the land. Warren Wearsby writes a very helpful statement. He says, The people in the land had been given plenty of opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord, just as Rahab and her family had done. If you skip down to that quote, Every wonder that God performed and every victory that God gave His people was a witness to the people of the land. But they preferred to go on in their sins and reject the mercy of God. Never think, listen to the statement, Never think of the Canaanites as helpless, ignorant people who knew nothing about the true God. They were willfully sinning against a flood of light. And so, that's how we understand the conquest of Jericho and the other nations. God's sovereign, God is jealous, God is patient, and and repentance was available if they took it, but they did not. So they experienced God's judgment. And as we think about God's judgment, I want to make just a couple of comments about his judgment that come from this text to help us understand how devastating his judgment really is. First of all, judgment is God's wrath against sin. Judgment is God's wrath against sin. Look what it says in verse 24. They burned the city with fire and everything in it. Now, This is interesting because fire is used throughout the Bible 
to signify the judgment of God. Wearsby goes on to say, the burning of Jericho, like like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, is a picture of the judgment of God that will fall on all who reject the truth. Just like Jericho was burned with fire, everyone that rejects the one true God and his salvation will experience judgment by fire. Over in Revelation chapter 20, the Bible speaks of those who are unsaved, being resurrected and standing before the great white throne of judgment. And the Bible says those people will be judged by things written in a book about them. Now, how many of you would be ashamed if a video replay of your life was shown up on the big screen this morning? Anybody? Would you want that? Can I tell you this? There is a record of your life. It may not be up on the video screen this morning, but if you are not saved one day, you will stand before a holy God and a perfect recounting of all your deeds will be there in that book. And you will be judged for those sins. And the Bible speaks of what that judgment is like. It says everyone whose name is not found written in the book of life, those who are unsaved, will be cast into an eternal lake of fire. I don't know what all that entails, but it doesn't sound pleasant, does it? In the book of Matthew, in different parables, Jesus speaks of eternal judgment as fire. Torment, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. That goes on forever. It's eternal. It never stops. And so this fire in Jericho reminds us that when God judges, he will judge by fire. There's another thing we see here. Judgment is being denounced by God. Judgment is being denounced by God. Look what it says in verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So God curses Jericho, says, If anyone tries to rebuild it, he will pay with the life of his loved ones. Which, by the way, is exactly what happens. If you write in your margin, 1 Kings 16, verse 34, someone tries to rebuild Jericho, and that's exactly what happens. Jericho was under the curse of God. And and a curse is when you are denounced by a holy God. He denounces Jericho. And when we sin, we live under the curse of God. Nothing denounced by God can dwell in God's presence. Old Testament scholar Martin Wooster says this, The temporal destruction by the curse must be seen as a prelude and foreshadowing of a more final judgment that God will mete out to those whose unrighteousness will be full in the end of days. Jericho was cursed. If you're unsaved, you are living under a curse. Denounced by God, separated from Him. And if you die in that condition, you will spend all of eternity separated from God. You've been cursed by God because of your sin. So judgment is 
is God's wrath against sin and judgment is, is being denounced by God. Now, in our society today, rightly, we have an appeals process. Our justice system is, is built on people who are fallible. So we need a, an appeals process in our land. But I want you to understand something. When it comes to final judgment, when God declares his final verdict for your life and for your eternity, there will be no appeals process. No one will rise up on that day and say, that's not fair! Because the book of deeds will be open. No one will say, well, I appeal! No, God's verdict is final. And judgment which goes on forever in eternity in that awful place called hell, will be devastating. So this this temporal judgment of Jericho reminds us of how awful God's eternal judgment is for those who are unsaved. So this passage teaches us about judgment, but this passage also teaches us about salvation. Judgment is is carried out by a righteous God. Secondly, salvation is offered by a gracious God. Salvation is offered by a gracious God. Aren't you glad that God who is holy and righteous and just is also merciful, gracious, and loving? And we see this here in Joshua chapter 6. We see Rahab saved from God's judgment, delivered from Destruction delivered from the city. And we learn some things about salvation by looking at Rahab's life. First of all, we learn salvation is received by faith. Salvation is received by faith. Over in Hebrews chapter 11, let me read you what it says about Rahab. Hebrews 11, the famous Hebrews hall of fame or hall of faith. It says in verse 30, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In other words, she was on the true God's side by helping the spies. And that was a reflection of her faith in the one true God. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Everyone that's ever been saved in human history has been saved by faith. Old Testament saints were saved by faith. We who live on this side of the cross are saved by faith. Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward in faith to what God was going to do by sending a Redeemer and a Messiah. We're saved by looking back at what Jesus Christ has done and embracing Him as our Lord and Savior. Over in Genesis 15, the Bible says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So everyone that's ever been saved, like Rahab, have been saved by faith. Salvation comes when you say, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. I need God. And I believe that what Jesus did for me is my only hope. So instead of trusting myself, I'm placing my faith and trust in what Christ has done for me. That's saving faith. And Rahab was saved by faith. She received it by faith, by trust in the Lord. Secondly, salvation is a gift of grace. 
a gift of grace. Look in verse 22 of Joshua 6. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. Notice it calls her the prostitute in verse 22. Look in verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. Calls her a prostitute or harlot, your translation may say. Over in the New Testament, same thing. She's called the harlot or the prostitute. Now, how would you like to have your worst sins attached to your name all the time? Wouldn't that be terrible? But why are we reminded, Old Testament, New Testament, that Rahab was a harlot? Like what John Calvin writes, he writes, She is mentioned as a harlot in order to amplify the grace of God. He's showing how undeserving of salvation she was, and yet she had received salvation as a gift of grace. And that's true of all of us. Every one of us in this room are unworthy of salvation. We have sinned against a holy God. We've all got stuff in our life. Amen? But God offers salvation as a free gift of grace. Listen to me. Salvation is not something you achieve. It's a gift that you receive. And Rahab reminds us of that. The the prostitute, the harlot, now she's saved. Salvation is a gift of grace. Third, salvation changes the trajectory of your life. I want you to notice how Rahab's life changes after she believes in the one true God. What did God do for Rahab? Well, first of all, God changed her. Over in Matthew 1, we read she's part of a a genealogy, same at the end of Ruth, which means she got married. So watch this. Rahab went from a, a pagan harlot to a believing wife. That's life change, isn't it? She became a family woman. Her trajectory of life was changed. God changed her. Secondly, God used her. God used her. End of Ruth. Matthew 1 verse 5, we learned that she was the mother of Boaz who married Ruth. And Boaz was the father of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. Matthew 1 5 reminds us that she is in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. So watch this. Rahab went from prostitution to being a part of a king's bloodline. She went from shame and brokenness to royalty, which is all of our story. If you are saved by the grace of God, God took you from from brokenness and shame and guilt and made you a son or daughter of the king. God changed her. God used her. Say something else about salvation. Not only will salvation change the trajectory of your life, salvation can change the trajectory of your family. Look in verse 25. I love this. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. So not only was Rahab saved, her family was saved. Their life was affected by her faith. There's no doubt that her faith had an influence on those closest to her. Now this is important because 
There may be someone here this morning and you feel like you can't get past your past. And you feel like there's too much brokenness and dysfunction in your family for you to have victory over. And I want you to understand that God by His grace will save you and change you and then through you He will change those around you. He can absolutely change your family. The, the entire trajectory of generations can be changed by the grace and the power of Almighty God. And so salvation can change the trajectory of your family. And then I want to make this final statement to make it very clear. Salvation is through Christ. Salvation is through Christ. Look what it says in verse 22 of Joshua 6. But, the two, but to the two men who spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. How did the spies know the right house to go to? Well, back in Joshua 2, if you remember, when Rahab agreed to protect them and help them, they said, When we come back to overthrow Jericho, take this scarlet thread and put it in your window. And when we see that scarlet thread, we'll know to protect you and your family, and you'll be saved from destruction. Now, when I preached that passage in Joshua 2, I reminded you that there is a thread of blood atonement that is woven throughout the entire Bible. People being saved based upon the death of another, which points ultimately to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. Jesus shed his blood for our sins so that we might be saved. And there are reminders of this and pointers of this all throughout God's word. There's a scarlet thread woven throughout the Bible. And this literal scarlet thread in Joshua 2, hanging out of Rahab's home, reminds us of that theme throughout God's word. The redemptive theme. A scarlet thread of redemption. In other words, Rahab's salvation being marked by the scarlet thread. All the different pictures of blood atonement throughout the Old Testament all point to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Amen? So, remember those fires of judgment in Jericho? They set the entire city on fire. You know what Jesus did? Jesus took the fire for us. The fires remind us that if we reject the Lord, we will spend eternity in a lake of fire. Conscious torment forever. But guess what? Jesus took our hell for us. In 1 John 2, 2, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our propitiatory sacrifice, our propitiation. It means that he took the wrath of God for us. The wrath that you and I deserve. Jesus took it all on the cross. And listen to me. Because Jesus took my hell and your hell, you don't have to go to hell. Remember the curse on Jericho? Jesus became a curse for us. Galatians 3 is very clear that Jesus Christ took our curse for us and died on a tree. In our place. He took the the, the denouncement of God so we would not have to be denounced by God. So we could have a relationship with God. Jesus Christ became a curse for you and for me. 
That's how much he loves us. And so this story of Rahab reminds us of the scarlet thread. She was saved by judgment, saved from fire and cursing. You and I can be saved from the fires of hell and the curse of God if we embrace Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. There's a lady named Iris Blue. Perhaps you've heard her speak before. She's well-known, traveled all over the world sharing her story. Iris Blue grew up in Houston, Texas. And I heard her share her story at a meeting down in Jackson. She grew up in a very dysfunctional family situation. She ran away from home at an early age. She got involved in drug use and all types of immorality. Because of her sin, she was sentenced to eight years in prison. And she got out of prison and she says, I was exactly the same. Didn't change at all. She went right back to her sinful, unlawful even, living. About a year and a half after Iris Blue got out of prison, a young man shared with her one day the good news. He shared with her that Jesus saves sinners. At that moment, She embraced Christ, and she was born again. And in her testimony, every time she shares it, she shares a very famous line. Iris Blue says, I knelt down a tramp and stood up a lady. That was her story. That's Rahab's story. That's all of our story if we know Christ. When you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven of your sin and your guilt and your shame. And God begins to change you from the inside out. And instead of fearing eternal fire and judgment in hell, you know that when you die, you will go into the very presence of God in heaven and be there forever. Amazing grace. And so here's what I want you to walk away with today. This passage, Joshua 6, pictures the reality. It's a microcosm. The reality that everyone must face. You will either be saved by faith in Christ like Rahab, or you will experience God's devastating judgment like Jericho. There's only two categories. Lost and saved. In eternity, there's only two final destinations. Heaven or hell. And where a person spends eternity is based upon what they do with Jesus Christ here in this life. So I want you to know that today can be your day of salvation. You don't have to be far from God in sin and shame and guilt. You can be forgiven, reconciled to a holy God, your life transformed by His grace and power, and have true hope and fulfillment and joy and peace in your life. But that only comes through Jesus.